Welcome to this week's episode of Fear, Honor, and Interest, the podcast where two straight white guys who went to Yale solve our nation's cultural divisions by talking about statues of dinosaurs. I'm your host, Charles Bovinger, coming to you from Washington, D.C., where the weather has become tremendous for this two-day period, and we're all super excited about it. And with me on the line, as always, is David Wheel, this time coming to us from Connecticut. David, how's it going? It's a beautiful day here just outside of New Haven. It's great talking with you again. I miss it very much. You'll have to go to Pepe's and get some pizza for me. Yeah, I've been uh, hanging out with my dad and mostly um, subsisting on very humble hot dogs. But, you know, the company makes it worthwhile. Well, I mean, I, I have to say, if I were in New Haven for more than 24 hours and didn't have Pepe's, Sally's, Bar, or anything along those lines, I would, I, I don't know, I don't think I would have been in New Haven. That would just well, I guess you're, you're a traditionalist, Charles. I am it's a traditionalist. The, yeah. it's, there, there are New Haven-style pizza places here in D.C. They're good, but they're not the real thing. Yeah, I remember there were some opening up when I was, when I was there. I, I mean, D.C. is probably unrecognizable, even from the last time I've... I would imagine. I mean, there. the building that I live in right now, we looked at it when I was deciding to move in in, in 2013... We looked at the Google Map image, and it was an empty lot. And the Google Map image had been taken, I guess, nine, at 2009 when I had moved to D.C. the first time. So Yeah, wow. That's actually, this is in our tradition of nothing being tangential and everything being uh, perfectly, seamlessly integrated into the next thing we say. Um, you know, so I, I grew up in Houston, and my thoughts have been there over the past several days is... Um, this hurricane has been bearing down and you know the issue of development and houston and flooding is really interestingly intricately connected and um i i don't know if you uh read ProPublica, but this is a, a source of analysis that i've found very useful um in the recent past i've started trying to follow them and they had a, an extremely interesting investigation of um, ecology, policy, politics, development, you know, how they all, uh, come together, it's simple physics and engineering yeah. and how they all come together to, um, basically create this moment that we're dealing with now of, you know, how much land do you have? How much, what volume of water does it absorb and how much, water can fall from the sky before, you know, people's lives start being affected. Oh, that's, I have not read, I've read ProPublic. I have not read that, anything on that particular yeah. topic. Um, yeah, now, if I understand correctly, Houston is one of the extremes of urban, urban sprawl. No zoning. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, it's very, it, 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 it's, it's sort of hard to describe. And of course I haven't been, back there in a couple of years. Um, so I can't speak to the current state of things exactly, but, um, there's a, there's a wonderful, you know, in the way that we focus on contradictions at the cores of things, um, there's a wonderful duality in this, in the sort of Houston spirit of, rugged individualism because there's this there's this delightful weirdness uh in houston and the sort of idiosyncrasy that reflects 
you know, and the personalities of a lot of people there, a lot of people I went to high school with and, and know and really like. Um, but obviously when it comes to collective solutions to extraordinarily complex problems, uh, you can't always rely on individual, you know, the sort of aggregate of individual action to solve problems that are, you know, better under, uh, better sort of explained by the uh, tragedy of the commons concept. You know, in this case, everybody wants to develop their land in their own way. Everybody wants to build their house to the, you know, the, most people seem to compete there, or at least when I was there, you know, most sort of upper middle class people seem to compete by the size of house they could cram onto a particular city lot. And, you know, people want, investors want maximum returns on whatever land they buy. So they want, you know, retail assets. They want things that they can sell and you can't sell an empty lot full of switchgrass, even though that's the best thing for protecting the surrounding areas from flooding, evidently. Mm. I so, didn't know switchgrass was, switchgrass was a big um, anti-flooding. Yeah, well, it's... So obviously I'm no, uh, you know, I'm no ecologist. This is not my expertise, but, um, in general, uh, you know, it's pretty well understood that (laughs) concrete does not absorb water as well as natural grassland. Um, and in specific, this ProPublica article showed, uh, some photos of switchgrass with its root systems and a plant that is itself about, um, you know, two or three feet up out of the ground can have roots that stretch 15 feet under the ground. And what that does is breaks up the clay soil in Houston and creates a channel that, you know, a conduit that can, suck the water down off the surface into this root system and hold it there. And then, and, you know, as well as distributing it further into the ground, whereas, um, you know, even if it weren't concrete, uh, you know, if you just have like a lawn, you know, where the, the grass is only a couple inches and the roots don't go down that deep either, uh, that type of coverage, um, doesn't penetrate into the, into the soil and you just have vicious runoff. Um, obviously not as bad as if it's, you know, a parking lot or a, or a highway, but, um, you know, not, not as good as, as native grasses. That's the whole point is that ecosystems develop and finally tune themselves to local conditions. And even, you know, this is, they're calling it now, uh, they're saying it's a, you know, 500 year flood. And of course, it's it's like the third yeah. hundred year flood in three years. So, you know that terminology perhaps needs to be adjusted. But, um, you know, but even if it really were only to occur once every five hundred years, grasses that developed there over, you know, evolving over millions of years are perfectly suited to that type of uh, weather event. So. Um, anyway, yeah, no, I, I recommend the, I recommend the article to you. Good, good. Who is the author? Do you know? 
it was a it was a it was a it was a sort of a team effort okay. and part of what was great about it is that it had like an enormous and not it wasn't distracting um but they had a great multimedia mm. sort of a deft use of multimedia to illustrate the points that they were making in terms oh. of zoning you know where where is the flood problem what addresses have been affected where have there have been insurance claims that kind of stuff yeah it's fascinating i um yeah, that that actually makes a a great segue into our main topic for the episode, talking about zoning, because uh, this week's uh, podcast is going to be about our heresies as progressive or liberal commentators and where it is that we differ from most of the left, and uh, it, it it helps cr- to create you know a sense of balance since we started off this show saying that we wanted to be you know sober and and rational and try our best to get to the truth of an issue. Uh, and yet, uh, up to this point, I mean, we have we have attacked the right a fair amount, in large part because they're in power and they happen to be in a particularly bad cultural state at the moment. Um, but because it would be a special irony to do so right after our episode on both sidesism, uh, we're going to take this week to uh, talk about where we disagree with the left. And something that uh, I did consciously while preparing for this episode was not to go over which items we would we would uh, disagree on together, so that we could both be shocked and horrified <laughs> at the other person's heresies in real time for you, the listener. And I mean, I want to note that uh, one thing where I don't know how to what extent zoning is necessarily a left-right issue, but um, sometimes at least there's a a view of um, right-leaning businessmen who just want to use a spot for whatever they can versus left-wing people uh, who want to protect the ecology or whatever with, with zoning. And um, what I what I sort of, my personal take based on what I have read, uh, overall having not read this ProPublica article, um, with, uh, is that um, in for a lot of these cities, the zoning restrictions that liberals put in are uh, somewhat counterproductive for a lot of their actual goals. Um, I mean, there's a lot of NIMBYism, which for those of you who have not studied economics, NIMBYism is an acronym for not in my backyard. And it basically refers to any time there is uh, some structure, some power source usually, like uh, wind turbines, that we all agree is a good thing. But a person says, this is a good thing, but I don't want it anywhere near me. It should be in somebody else's backyard, not my backyard because I think it's unsightly, but someone else should have to deal with it being unsightly because I know that it is something that needs to be done. And you get this a fair amount with zoning. Um, Sometimes people say, look, we need more, we need housing to be more affordable, but the method they want to use to do that is to have special kinds of government subsidized housing rather than the easier solution, which would be to allow more housing to be built privately. Uh, I mean, that's, yeah, sometimes when when uh, the left will come up with green belt areas, uh, that it ends up being somewhat counterproductive because they haven't always really um, looked at the ecology of that area. I mean, The Economist loves to show examples of where this happens in British cities, where you have a green belt area that's not even really usable, worthwhile land, and it's not serving a particular anti-flood purpose, as we were just discussing, but because it's a an area that hasn't been developed on, they sort of want to leave it not developed, and it's very hard once you put in some of these restrictions to change them, because it's very hard to change a law once the law is there. 
there's always going to be some interest that opposes changing it, and it's usually not going to be strong enough to get um, get uh, enough people who have a small interest in changing the law uh, into fixing it. David, what do you think about zoning? Uh, that's I'm, I'm really glad that you uh, tied that in because it was a great point. Um, zoning in particular um, strikes me as it's, it's a great way to investigate the question of why are we thinking about this as a left-right issue? You know, right. why are we in particular and people in general? Because uh, housing, uh, public housing is a good example of where all these things, all these other issues that could better be understood as left-right problems. Like, you know, okay, if you're going to talk about creating new housing stock, how do people get from their homes to where they work? Are you talking about highways or are you talking about light rail? Are you talking about mass transportation? Uh, that's a sort of a typically left-right distinction. Do you prioritize people owning cars and going around that way? Does the car, you know, if you're talking about highways and cars, then obviously we're talking about, uh, for the most part now, still gasoline and you're talking about increasing emissions. You know, all these things tie together and things that aren't themselves necessarily or should not themselves necessarily be um, divisible or sortable into left, right categories or partisan political categories. Because this is another, this should be something we should have um, perhaps uh set up to begin with is that, you know, when we talk about left and right, and this is a, it's a theme we return to when, you, when we talk about left and right, for the most part, we're not, we're not trying to run a seminar here. We're not citing sources to create, um, you know, unassailable, uh, frameworks for investigating, you know, what we mean by the use of these terms. People mostly know what we mean and and we try to be precise when we're talking about it. Um, but of course, the way that those ideological positions then kind of filter into partisan politics gets so complicated, in part because, like I'm saying, you can start with one issue, like zoning and, and affordable housing, and follow, you know, sort of trace that into other issues where if you have more of a commitment to some other issue, then that could flip your position on the first issue that you're talking about. So, yeah. you know, if you're like a, a total hardliner on, um, you know, protecting nature and reducing emissions and fighting climate change, then you could allow that to force your hand on questions of zoning and affordable housing, um, which is just, I mean, that's just the mess of politics, right? And that's why, that's why the swamp needs to stay a swamp because you have these competing interests um, clashing into each other. And which was the founder's idea. Which was the founder's idea. Again, this, you know, the holy sainted federalist 10, um, which I, I did get a chance to reread and it's, uh, it's as, it's as, it's as good as I remember or better. Cause it's got that, you know, wonderful antidote to reading Trump tweets, you know, <laughs> <laughs> the 18th century flowery language of our founders. 
Um, but yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to take your, um, policy point here and ante up with a sort of a cultural, uh, issue, which, you know, again, we're talking about ways in which I'm glad you used the word heresy because that's how I was talking about it in shorthand with, you know, with friends and family, what are you about to talk about? And I was, I was, I I thought you were not going to use that word, but I guess it's a testament to how similarly our, our minds work at, at times, but um, you know, these ways in which these these particular points in which we feel that we just don't quite line up with what we otherwise assume to be our position, you know, our own as we as we look at ourselves, it's like where are we not standing on the same ground as the people we seem to be identifying with or on the same side as, and uh, one of my experiences over the years was to, you know, so, so I, I tremendously and profoundly value public secularism and the separation of church and state. And for a time as a, uh, callow youth, I conflated that commitment to a certain, um, disdain for religion and faith in general. But as I spent more time traveling through this complicated world and and meeting people of faith who live their values, my profound respect for those people, uh, I'm thinking particular of a Marine aviator who, after his children graduated, after his last child went off to college, well, I guess actually one of his kids was, I think, still enlisted, but after his last kid was out of the house, um, he and his wife adopted two uh, or three special needs children um, who were, I think, like seven and, and 12 or something. So, you know, the hard cases. Yeah. And this is just, this is a, a family with a sense of mission and the man and his kid, you know, are channeling that into military service. Um, the kid obviously is still young, but the father, you know, dedicated his life to serving the country in uniform. And the, and, and his wife, obviously, um, I don't know all that she did, but at a minimum, she, um, <clears throat> supported him and, and made it possible for him to do that. Um, and, you know, then late in their lives, they, you know, they didn't retire as it were, they continued and found new ways of serving their, their, their community, their country. And, you know, the reasons I'm not going to quibble with them for the reasons they do that, you know, like, I don't, I don't have to agree with them as to the basis of their faith to be profoundly grateful um, for their commitment to it and the way that they channel that faith. And obviously I'm not saying that, you know, only religious people do this, but my point is, um, you know, particularly at a cultural moment when there's so much um, harshness and it, you know, you can be forgiven. I think if you, um, you know, if you look at sort of the national tone of the way any of these of these issues are being discussed, 
uh, you see so much of the, you see so much disgust, you know, and, and harshness and, um, you know, the way that Mike Pence, for example, is described by certain people on the left. You know, I'm not going to take this moment to defend Mike Pence, but I have learned to see by, beyond my own earlier biases against a lot of people like Mike Pence and a lot of people who vote for Mike Pence. And um, the fact is that a lot of those people, whatever we say about their politics and the um, some of the commitments that they make as a result of other things, other other beliefs that they have, you know, as I was saying before about sort of how zoning and um, transportation and climate policy can interact negatively. Um, we get, you know, we, we, we lose sight of, of, of what should be our tremendous respect for what a lot of those people do for their fellow men and women and the way that they live their values. And, um, so, you know, I have other policy things that I was going to talk about, but I just, since you, you know, I'm glad that you mentioned the zoning thing. That was a good meaty policy issue, but I wanted to sort of, no, I uh, actually agree with you too. Because return the volley with cultural, you know, yeah, sort of that's also policies. an area where I think I differ with a lot of people because, um, uh, secularism, it's an interesting thing because we live in a country that's some 75, 80% Christian. Yeah. And you would think from the way things get discussed a lot of the time that it was almost like 50% Christian and then like 45% atheist, hardcore secularist, and then 5% religious minorities that the left believes it's standing up for. But it's not like that even among people on the left who generally are people of faith, but to varying degrees. And um, something where I think that I've differed from a lot of people on the left is sometimes you hear these stories that sound really stupid about a student at a school who gets in trouble for praying or something like that. And uh, the sense that I've always had, and of course I've never been present for any of these, but the sense that I've always had is that it's usually... Um, a well-meaning Christian administrator of a school who thinks he's going to get in trouble if they have, you know, prayer in a public school or something like that. Because I don't really know, I don't really know atheists who have this belief that they should, I mean, I don't personally know, atheists who have this belief that they should crack down on individual students praying silently to themselves at a lunch table or a group of students voluntarily choosing on their own accord at recess to go pray around the flagpole. You know, these these sound like the sort of things that get passed around in right wing circles on the Internet is these horrible, horrible things the left wants to do. But I don't actually know atheists on the left who want to do that. I think I just mostly see cases of, of people who are overly nervous and protective about what they're supposed to do in a public school. Um, likewise, I don't think that um, whenever somebody talks about their faith in politics, I think that that um, is sometimes mis misread by some people on the left who want them to keep their faith out of some of what they say in politics because if you're a person of faith a person of very sincere faith that faith will guide a lot of what you value and it will guide a lot of your motivations and it would be dishonest not to talk about that when you're giving a speech on an issue if your faith yeah. is driving what you want to do 
that's very important. You should be clear and straightforward about that. You should even be proud about it if that faith is prompting you to do something really good, like the example that you just gave. Um, I think where it becomes an issue is when people start using uh, faith as a way to not take part in a dialogue or to try to claim that they're right without having to, to debate it. An example of this would be on gay rights issues where they say, well, my faith makes me think gay people are evil and we can't deal with it. That's that's a bad example of it because it's not you're not there's no conversation to be had there about values. You're simply declaring that um, I think God doesn't like gay people, therefore we shouldn't like gay people. Um, it's a sort of a, yeah, a complicated I think, issue. I, I, I'm going to stop you there because I think yeah, you're um... – I want us to get vicious. You're just using a shorthand that makes it a little hard to um, cast light on that issue. Because I think, I mean, you know, is that, I mean, it, it, a very well-chosen um, example, but I don't, don't really like the way you're talking about it. Because the whole concept of um, love the sinner, hate the sin, I am not going to second-guess someone who says that that is how they think and that's what they believe. Um, I profoundly disagree with the concept, but I do accept that people honestly, truly feel that way. And I, I mean, the society we live in has to find room for people to say, this is what I believe, and this is how I want to live my life. As long as they then, as you were saying, and this is yeah. the the more positive way of what you were saying, because I think this like you know God hates gay. They're like the Westboro Baptist Church. Yes, they're out there. Yeah, know, but and it, um, I want to point out right now that in no way, shape, or form are we suggesting that the right should be identified 100% with the Westboro Baptist Church. Exactly. That's, that that's, is a that's very my, extreme minority. That's my point. Yeah. I think you were, I mean, you were, um, I, I think you were just sort of gesture, gesturing a little carelessly with your with your words there. Well, I wasn't referring um, to people quite as extreme as them. I meant, I mean, it was only, it was 2003, our freshman year of college, that people on the right were still arguing when Lawrence v. Texas came up that it should be illegal for gay people to have sex in their own home. Right, well, and and that's a problem. Yeah, and I, this is this is and this these is are the same the, people the we're still I'm talking about to... now. It's not like we have a whole new generation already of conservatives. They've simply yeah. pretended they never had that view because it's no longer acceptable. Right, they're either they're either running away from those positions or, um, or yeah, they're just uh, sort of trying to change the subject. But, um, you know, but my my point is just, um we can be offended by the idea that our neighbor thinks that gay people are sinners, but that being offended, I mean, we should recognize that being offended should be irrelevant. Oh yeah. To the greatest extent possible, our being offended should be irrelevant to our politics in particular we should, and, and, as well as their being offended. Yeah, I was just going to say that's by the, that's the other end of it. They're offended of, by gay exactly, people, of gay people them, you know, being gay. able to live their lives in public, you know, yeah. like people should be able to, you know, to live their lives and, and, and with their own children, for example, they should be able to, you know, teach their religion as they understand it. Um, but 
my belief is that th those children being children will see the world. And if they look around them and see healthy, happy, gay friends and neighbors and families and whatever, you know, they'll, they'll see their parents and they'll love and respect their parents. And they'll say, my parents are wrong. And it does and they'll, and they'll move on. Happening. And that's how society works. Exactly. And that's what's happening. I mean, we yeah. see that happening in, in very quick procession. Um, you know, but we should not allow our being offended at those old thoughts to, um, you know, to, to destroy our faith in a, um, in a constitutional cosmopolitan society. And I want to clarify that when I was talking about that as a specific example of people of faith, um, declaring something and how that sort of is being used um, in the political sphere. I didn't mean to say that they should never be able to mention that, but I mean to say that I do feel that it's important if we're going to, in, in a society, it's important to be able to sort of discuss these values. And right. sometimes people use, well, God doesn't like gay people as well. They expect that to be the end of the discussion and like their faith is blocking you from discussing the issue any further. And so we have to inform policy based on the fact that they feel that way. I think that that is a complicated problem that is, is a lot harder than some of these cases, as I just mentioned, like people who want prayer in school, um, where, I mean, even if they're praying in a classroom before class starts, not using class time for it, but just praying in a classroom before things start, even out loud, I don't have a problem with that. Individual students should be able to express themselves in the way that they want. Um, I, I, I'm just not bothered by, um, I'm not bothered in the way that a lot of other liberals are by public prayer. What does bother me about public prayer is, um, when you can see if, so, um, Matthew 6, 5 is one of those sort of overlooked parts of the New Testament where Jesus is very clear that, um, hypocrites are the people who pray in public because they want to be seen praying. And he's, and he says that the right way to pray is to go to your room by yourself, close the door and pray to God. So that prayer is supposed to be about you and God. It's not supposed to be about people seeing you demonstrate what a person of faith you are. And I think part of the problem is once politics gets into it, you see a lot of people who want to be seen praying. And yeah. this is, this is one of those things that is true for both the left and the right. It's a bigger issue on the right because they're really aggressive about wanting you to make sure you see them praying. Um, they want to have their big national prayer breakfast. They want to um, do a lot of that. But there are people on the left because whenever a left-wing candidate that we all know is, you know, probably is a person of some degree of faith, but on the whole, faith is not a huge motivator and they're fairly secular and possibly more culturally Christian in the way that people can be culturally Jewish. Um, than some other things, and they want to make a big show of, of praying in public so that they can uh, solidify their faith bona fides. And uh, I think that that I think that's a questionable area. But when people of faith legitimately just want to pray and they're not doing it as a show, don't get in their way. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Zuckerberg comes to mind here. That you know he's been an atheist his whole life as far as anybody knows and now you know like t equals zero he's an atheist t equals one 
balloons go up, interested in running for office, yeah. equals two. I find religion very important to my life. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the kind of thing where that's bad for practical reasons as much as anything else, because I'm not a big fan of, of posturing that nobody really believes, but we kind of have to pretend we believe. Well, obviously, I mean, it works in so many in so many ways. And this, is, this is another one of these sort of mystifying moments of, of the Trump era, which is that um, he goes through the motions of, you know, Corinthians 2 and, you know, and I love the Bible. I read it all the time. And he does this, as with so many things, without... I mean, I can't imagine that anyone believes it. But the people who it's pitched to accept the sentiment. And right. they say, yeah, and some of them are even it's so your honest. Shibboleth. I and mean, they're, that's, they're that's actually honest. Well, and some of them are, are even honest enough to say, you know, he is an instrument in the hand of God. Right. Like, he is, uh, you know, he's like uh, Nebuchadnezzar. You know, yeah. they say he's, uh, you know, God works in mysterious ways, and I don't, I don't question the ways of the Lord. And, uh, it's it's just mystifying, particularly after that type of a an episode that people, and particularly since you know other people seemed to go for him because he simultaneously said those things and you you know he worshipped to the icons with one tweet and then shattered the icons with the other tweet and um, obviously it was a very special election and you know he did not get a lot of votes but he but he obviously got enough right yeah yeah i mean that we don't want to get too far away back into criticizing the right although as i've noted before at this no, particular no, was time not, in, oh yes i was not criticizing the right there i was just pointing out i was, I was not attempting to criticize the right i was uh well, i can I, assure I you had i gone along with this i would have ended up <laughs> criticizing the right that's why i stopped you to say sure, that sure sure <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I have I have other things to say that are not bashing the right on that, and actually, that even one that ties into um, a way in which I'm beginning to feel more alienated from the left. But um, let's let's save that for a little later, maybe. Okay, uh, sure. So, as much as I had a wonderful um, series of segues from switchgrass into zoning into secularism. I don't really have a great one to some of the next things uh, that I wanted to talk about, um, but I'll, I'll flash us back to um, Bernie Sanders. We mentioned this in weeks past, that one of the things that concerned me about his movement was that they started to be adopting things that you'd seen a fair amount on the right in terms of, well, my policies are going to generate so much growth, they're not going to cost what they look like they'll cost. Yeah. And that's a thing that the left seems to have been embracing more and more in recent years that I find very alienating because um, you really should try to ground your stuff in plausible economics. Everybody will disagree on specific economics, but when you just start throwing out there, you know, the minimum wage can be increased to $15 an hour with no repercussions immediately nationwide. That's, That's not great economics. I mean, the minimum wage has less of an has less of a negative impact than people on the right always claim it will. Um, in general, uh, I, we're still getting data now on the fifteen dollar an hour minimum wage and how that's going. And I've heard mixed things. Um, and in fact, I would I would like to see the minimum wage just indexed to inflation because um, I, mean, I don't know on a yearly basis how 
much effort it would take to keep updating that. Um, but the problem that we have with the minimum wage is largely that it hasn't been increased in so long that if you adjusted for inflation, it would be in the $15 an hour range. And But I think the problem is if you jump suddenly to $15 an hour, that's a much bigger problem than ramping it up. Which, by the way, Hillary Clinton, who could never capture the heart of the left, um, she said, let's do it a little bit more gradually. Like, we can get there, but we're not going to do it all at once. That's a bit much to do. And I think the left has a tendency with economics to think that you can do a lot of things by fiat that you really can't. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's a lot in there. Uh, one thing that I, I guess I'm supposed to be bashing the left here, but, um, you know, I gotta say, but we should uh, be honest. I mean, that's, that's, that's key. Yeah. Well, you know, the, 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 the whole Sanders voter Bernie or bust never came back to Clinton thing. Um, this, like the $15 minimum wage, is a matter, an incredibly complex issue yeah. where there is still a lot of evidence coming in. And, um, you know, this latest issue of like some exit, so a couple of reports indicating that something like 10% of Sanders voters did not back Clinton, but in fact voted for Trump. Um, you know, it seems quite possible that those were never really Democrats to begin with. They weren't right. left. You know, they were drawn to Sanders because of the sense in which he was an iconoclast and they weren't going off of any sort of ideological point. And so this question of like, did the, you know, did Clinton, did, uh, Clinton fail in some way ever to capture the heart of the left? I think there's a sense in which, or I have a sense in which Clinton was always criticized by them, but a lot of them did come home. The question that becomes the question that becomes to what extent in the context of a general election does all the negativity of what you could even describe as a dysfunctional, but loving family, you know, where the, where the left voters are saying, we find this deficient. We don't like this, that you did. And that it's all negativity. But then when it matters, a lot of them did come out and vote for her. Right. Uh, the question is then, though, like, okay, I give you the, you know, I acknowledge that you voted for her, but did all that negativity turn other people off from voting yeah. for her? And I think that's a that's potentially a valid. I think that's a, 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 at least in my own view, that's a more valid criticism than the um, straight up, you know, Bernie voters defected and cost the, right. you know, cost the election. Yeah, especially since my understanding is that the. That, that percentage of, of Bernie voters switching votes later is not, not really all that historically high. Um, exactly. And, and exactly. we had very weird stuff going on on the Republican side because of Trump uh, <laughs> right. that particular year. One thing that I noticed was a lot of people who were not enthusiastic about Clinton when they felt like they had to vote for her in the primaries. Um, by election day, somewhere around the last week or two of the election, suddenly started, particularly female friends of mine, suddenly started being a little bit more excited about it. Um, a lot of people, some who even hated Clinton a lot back when I knew them in college, were suddenly wearing pants, had posted themselves mm. on Election Day morning in pantsuits to go vote for Hillary, taking their daughters along with them with like Hillary things and how excited they were to vote for the first female president. Yeah. They were a lot sadder the next day. Um, we thought things were going to turn out a bit differently. Um, yeah. But it was interesting to, for me to note that huge sudden shift in, uh, in 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 sentiment right at the end, 
and I do agree with you that I think part of the problem was that there was a lot of negativity leading up to that point where Hillary Clinton was criticized for a lot of things that were criticizable about her. But it was this is sort of that tendency of both sidesism where it's almost as if there'll be a, a similar amount of criticism of the candidate from people on each side, regardless of how much that criticism is deserved. You know, that it, it, the idea that it could even have looked close to the American electorate, the flaws of Trump versus the flaws of Clinton. I mean, we're seeing every day now how absurd that that was. Yeah. Yeah. I'm reminded of my godfather who, this is sort of an obscure, this is quite obscure, but we got to, we I'm giving you fodder for your next intro. Yeah. Um, so I walked on to the crew at, you know, our freshman year. And my godfather was an oarsman as well. And I told him about training with the guys. And one of the upperclassmen who was a, you know, they were fairly, they were fairly good. Not, anyway, I I was impressed. These are, you know, more experienced, more athletic guys. Um, said something about how, you know, the thing about oarsmen is uh, you tell them to do something and they'll complain about it, but then they'll get it done. And I, I like that sentiment because I focused on the, and then they'll get it done point, you know, that they always deliver. And I told that to my godfather and he said, why are they complaining? <laughs> and I just thought, wow, this is, this is a generational and to some extent regional class. Cause this is a guy who grew up, uh, straddling Kentucky and Indiana and I remember visiting him and he very proudly uh, pointed out the Amish construction crews that were waiting to be picked up. You know, they wouldn't they wouldn't drive uh, automobiles, but, you know, when they were contracted out to build houses and stuff, you know, the, the foreman could come and pick them up and they would be willing to be, you know, be moved in a van or whatever, pickup truck. And he, he told me about how they would work sun up to sundown, swinging their hammers and, you know, get as much done. I mean, they were actually competitive to people who use power tools because they just wow. never stopped. And so that kind of Midwestern, I mean, it's almost, it's almost like a parody of itself, you know, the sort of Midwestern flinty um, positivity and decent, fundamental decency. Those are what, those are the values that he cherished. And I, you know, in my generation appreciated this, like, contrast between whiny exterior and then delivering in the end. And he was like, you just had no patience for that. Yeah. And I, again, I think, I think there's, you know, there's something to that, that the left, and again, this is, I've, I've only hit cultural notes so far. Um, you know, but the left is so focused on highlighting the contradictions of society um, in order to solve them that I think a lot of people, my grandfather, I mean, my godfather is a sophisticated man, but I think a lot of people in his milieu would see that uh, negativity and get, and wouldn't go any further. They'd say, you know, why, why? do I have to deal with this degree of negativity? Why can't I just focus on positivity? We'll get it done. We'll, we'll do the job. We'll, you know, you will know them for the love they have for one another, not, you know, modern family, not, um, what's the term shameful. I haven't seen it, but it's some, uh, 
William H. Macy. There's like some, some family in like Detroit or whatever that's. Oh, totally shameless. Famous. Shameless, shameless. Yeah. Yeah, I, I haven't yeah. watched much of that show, so I don't. I, I haven't seen any of it, but I, I've seen the ads. It's a very dysfunctional. It, just, family. it strikes me as exactly a dysfunctional but loving family. It's like. Why don't you just go with loving? <laughs> right. I mean, that would be it's it's just the amusing generational contrast that for us, our generation, if we have a thought, we're supposed to voice it, and that's why we're here doing a podcast. So you have cut me to the bone, <laughs> Charles. <laughs> um, well, you know, just to stick to cultural stuff, then, so we can sort of get through that before some more specific things. Um, you know, I was going to say that one of the things that drives me crazy, and you know. The right makes a lot of hay out of out of this, and I mean, I can't, I can't on this particular issue. I'm not sure I can say that they're totally wrong to do so. College students are really annoying. I'm just going to say that it's the because we were college students. I remember yeah. freshman year. I remember, oh, and this was we were college freshmen 2003 2004. So the 2004 election, which was you know a big moment of excitement, and then being dispirited by our generation as we sort of learned that this awful George W. Bush was going to be, that our worldview would be kind of shattered because after a year in college, you just assumed, why would anyone vote for this awful man? And then right. he wins re-election by a bigger margin than he won election in the first place. Right. Um, and you're sort Which of horrified is to say he won. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, but, so the truth of the matter is college students are kind of obnoxious and, um, I think I was one of the less obnoxious college students because I'm just that wonderful a person. But <laughs> but it is true that when you go to college, some people have. You now I was um, I was considered sort of like far lefty in my high school because it was a very Republican area. Right. Um, but then after a year at college, we go back and meet up again the next summer, and suddenly I'm this right wing neoliberal. I mean, we didn't use the term neoliberal back then, but you know, I'm this neoliberal shill because my views haven't changed and everybody else went off to college for a year. And now they have these incredibly far left views because sometimes, you know, you go to college, you realize that you had this sort of um, narrow view based on where you grew up and, and what you were exposed to, you're exposed to other ideas. And then people who are first exposed to a new idea always tend to take it too, too far. And college yeah. students just don't have enough background yet to really approach everything um, as well as, we would like. And so that's how you end up with college students doing the things you see on the news where they're yelling at their professors and having riots whenever there's a thing they don't like. Um, and all of these problems And I actually want to, um, step in for a sort of a sub moment on that, uh, which is the, uh, trigger warnings and safe spaces. This is one of the things that they get in trouble for a lot right now, but I actually think that this is an example of a concept that was good that was taken too far because college students, which again, I was one of back in the day, college students are kind of dumb. <laughs> the problem is trigger warnings. When they were first introduced to me, this was before it became a, a common thing for people to be saying, I was exposed to trigger warnings as a concept in before online they were cool. fiction. Yeah. Well, no, I'm, I'm not saying before they were cool, before they were corrupted, let's say before the concept was corrupted back when it was pure and innocent. The That's even more. Was, well, you know, yes. millennial hipster. A, I know a, a friend who was involved in online fanfic communities explained trigger warnings to me as a thing that would appear in fanfic things would say trigger warning. This fiction, this story will contain the following things, which some people will find objectionable. 
And um, she noted in particular that uh, for people who are rape survivors, there can be stuff where if there's a reference to something like that in there, it can trigger PTSD. It, they, people who have had a traumatic experience can have something that triggers PTSD. That's a very reasonable thing to have. Putting a content rating on a, a story on the Internet is no different from having a content rating on a movie, which we do. We expect movies to have that. The rating even will say rated R for scenes of etc., etc., etc. That's a perfectly reasonable thing to do. So you had this nice concept of trigger warnings, which would tell people either because this is optional, you don't need to read it, it's got content you might not like, or even if they are going to read it, look, if you have PTSD triggers, this is what's in there. Much as you could say with the movie Saving Private Ryan, that was a PTSD trigger for a lot of veterans because it was Mm -hmm. a very intense movie. Um, But a lot of people would go see it anyway. They just know, be prepared, this could trigger PTSD. And then somewhere along the line, that idea kept spreading among college students, and they kept taking it too far. And you end up in this space where instead of being a warning, it became sort of a label of censorship of, oh, well, we don't want to read this because it's got things we don't like in it, which I don't know how common it is that that's actually what's happening, but this is certainly how it gets portrayed in the news a lot. Um, And and the other, the, the sister concept to the trigger warning is the safe space which I think we've touched on before on this podcast. The problem is if you're, you know, if in, in my case is a little different. I'm, you know, I, I started college having just freshly become in a wheelchair. Um, and so when you talk to people and you have something that makes you different and it doesn't have to be race, disability, religion, there are so many things that all children know, you know, when you're a child in grade school, people make fun of you for being different when you grow up and you learn you're not supposed to make fun of people for being different, you still have that problem where people want to ask you questions about being different. Or even when they're well-meaning, they might do something wrong. I've had a lot of people start pushing my chair from behind me without asking that I don't even know they're there. This happened to me in a dark alley once. I was freaking out. It is. This is not, this is not what you want to be doing. You pull out um, the tomahawk when you... I, I did. Oh, yes. Yeah, he's referring to armrests on my previous wheelchair that had... Uh, it could be used very effectively to beat people. Sadly, my current chair does not have those. Oh, um, no. At the time, I did, but I, I did not. I've never actually beaten anybody. I have yelled at a few people and then felt a little bad about how hard I yelled at them when they were just trying to help. But um, but this is the sort of thing. Where, well, this is the look, point. I mean, this, yeah, is, this why... is the point. They yeah. want to help. These are We're not talking about, you know, people who are being ableist or racist or anything in this context. They're trying to be nice, but it can be stressful for you to deal with this every moment of every day. I get kind of annoyed when people try to hold doors for me, not because it's like a pride thing or anything, but because other people grab doors and hold them open for me slower than I would do on my own. It's actually an inconvenience for me most of the time. There are situations where I would like help if my lap is full of something or if it's a particularly heavy set of doors. But for the most part, people trying to help is actively unpleasant for me. And when it happens all the time and when you're dealing with certain things all the time, Look, something that happens to me a lot is if I'm with a group of people and we go to talk to somebody, maybe at a store or a restaurant or something, I will say something and then the person will look at one of the other people, like look them in the eye and ask if I can get in. Oh, wow. Like they will look past me as if like I need to have my helpers be the ones who are my guardians who are taking care of me. That's a really annoying thing and it feels really bad and people aren't trying to mistreat me, but it feels really bad. And so when you talk about a safe space, you're talking about a place where 
in the context it originally was meant for on a college campus, here's a room or two, here's a meeting with a group of people where you don't have to deal with that nonsense. Here's a space where people are not going to, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're black, they're not going to ask you all kinds of bizarre questions. If you're in a touch wheelchair, your hair. yeah, exactly. They're not going to touch your hair. If you're, if you're in a wheelchair, they're not going to start pushing you without asking. You know, it's a space where you can just stop and relax from having to deal with some of the just nonsense you have to deal with all day. And the problem became that this concept of having a place where you can go and relax suddenly got extended to the whole college campus and to this notion that now no one anywhere can say something offensive. And that's not what the original concept was, and that's not practical in, in a college setting. You have to be exposed to things that are going to upset you. And, I mean, I saw what was – there was uh, one of those examples where a professor said something that got students mad at him, and they were yelling and protesting outside his office, and he said um, something about, will you let me stop for a second and hear what I have to say about this? And the student said, no, we don't want to hear what you have to say. And, I mean, that's just that was just kind of insane. Um, yeah. It's like people have taken that really way too far and um, people are taking any any perceived slight as being just as going further than it should be. And again, this is kind of a cultural thing about college students because I don't see adult liberals do this quite as much, although I do see it happen um, when you can make political hay out of it. Well, yeah, I, this is another cult. I mean, I, I promise I do have like policy. Oh, yeah, we're going to get I just about, wanted but... to finish the cultural stuff first. Oh, that, that's that's fair. Yeah, open with politics, switch to culture. And, but anyway, the free, free speech issue. Um, I, I wanted to bring that up in part because it's kind of confusing that just over the last couple weeks, it is it's just been in such flux as to whether free speech has become a left right issue. And it seems it, it I mean it seems there is a really strong bid by certain elements of um, the the American left um, to hand the right free speech as a part as a partisan football where the right wing obviously I mean like like what you were saying you know the the right wing national review weekly standard these types of people want to talk about uh, safe spaces and trigger warnings as if it's part of the closing of the American mind, you know, Oh, it's not just conservatives whose minds are closing. Look at the leftists. They just want to flip the, the table. So obviously they're going to reach for that and twist all those stories to make them seem as extreme as possible. And then, you know, you know, 18 year olds are not doing their cause any favors by helping that agenda, you know, by, by acting like 18 year olds, and um, and kind of overstating their case and applying concepts outside of their you know contexts in which they could actually be useful uh, in all the ways you described, I mean, very beautifully described. Um, and it seems like the same is happening now with free speech, except for that the except for that there's even more of a strong push by certain elements of the left to say, you know, no, we don't value free speech. Right. And so the the right is there with with open arms, and it's like. I mean, I, I don't, I don't concede yet that that is a left-right issue, um, but I mean, I think those those elements of the left must be defeated on this point. Right. And I'm uh, glad you used "defeated" because there are other words you could use, like "suppressed" or "silenced," that would be the opposite of what we intend. Like defeating an idea yeah. in a public space means engaging with it 
and defeating it rather than saying you're not allowed to say that at all, which is the antithesis of what we're arguing. That was very well pointed out. Yeah. I mean, just because free speech is the, I mean, there's a reason it's in the first amendment. Right. Uh, you know, I, I, I haven't read all the marginalia in all the federalist papers and all the, you know, all the constitutional amendment debate, but, um, the ability to speak publicly and to be protected for, for what you say is the ultimate value. It's the self-correcting mechanism of our society, um, collectively, you know, because it's not, obviously it's not just speech. It's, um, protests, demonstration, gathering, association, all of those values are wrapped up together. And I don't, I mean, I'm, I, I mean, I recognize that there are other countries that have different systems, but, um, in this context, I, I do believe in, in American exceptionalism, the extremely clear jurisprudence we have on, on speech and, uh, well, having gone to law school, I'm not sure clear is the word I'd use, but go on. Oh, well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we, we don't have laws against right. like, denying the Holocaust Nazi flags or the Nazi yeah. flag or things like that. And, and this is part of the, I mean, part of the, part of the deal with the safe space and um, trigger warning issue is that, I mean, there's a, again, there's a genuine reason that conservatives um, oppose that type of thing, which is that they present a theory of human psychology or they rely on a theory of human psychology that uh, in a sense emphasizes fragility over resilience. And I'm no, <laughs> I feel like the whole subtext to this, podcast is me just saying i'm no blankist you know i'm no psychologist <laughs> um and i i, I mean I, there's not. a podcast i listen to where they frequently end up saying this is not a medical podcast yeah 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 all the time uh, yeah although I, I mean i'm sure the people who would say that most would be doctors themselves probably they're the ones who would really be on the to say like this is not this medical is not advice, advice. Yeah. exactly um but uh God, where was I going with this? Um, so this sense of always skating on the edge of a nervous breakdown, you know, the, that the trigger warning safe space concept invokes, you know, that's not what it really means. But um, I think that a lot of conservatives genuinely want to resist the, uh, depiction of human fragility and inability to change that the concept of, mm. you know, as a blank, you know, as a rape survivor, as a person of color, as a this or that, my reaction to this thing is necessarily going to be, not, not think, my reaction to this idea, you know, to this speech is inevitably going to be you know, such a high degree of stress that I will be unable to, to think clearly. I'll be, I'll, I'll suffer some sort of crisis or I'll suffer physical trauma. Um, I think a lot of conservatives are, are sort of, are sincere in opposing that, uh, whole construct. Um, and that is tied to the, to the free speech issue, which is to say that if, um, you know, if you decide, um, we are going to make it illegal to deny the Holocaust. 
because X, Y, Z, you know, if your reasons are because it does physical harm to Jews to hear that, I think that's dangerous. I think that justification would be dangerous because it creates the concept that speech is violence. It, or it doesn't create it. It would legislate the concept that speech is violence. If on the other hand, you simply say, uh, our society engaged in, you know, uh, selling out Jews to the Gestapo and deporting people and our people ran, you know, members of our society ran, you know, they were the guards, they they were this and that, you know, they, they perpetrated the Holocaust and therefore, um, in order to prevent that from ever happening again, we are adopting this policy. However, flawed in certain ways it might be that's a pragmatic decision that i i don't really have a problem with um but it really seems like again these elements of the left um part of the way that the that this debate over the statues is shaping up you know, these confederate uh, monuments that um that it's veering towards the speech as violence justification which i think is incredibly pernicious um, I yeah. agree with that. I think there's also a pragmatic reason to oppose the bans on Nazi flags and so forth and Holocaust denial, which is that, um, I mean, you kind of drive it underground and you have this tendency to make it seem like they're covering something up. If right. you, once you close off an idea and say this cannot be debated, that makes, I mean, people who are be prone to Nazi stuff tend to be conspiracy theorists, I would think, tend to be really driven <laughs> yeah, to I think it. Yeah, that's the safest. Um, and so, uh, all you're doing is giving more grist to the mill of uh, conspiracy theories by saying they won't even let us talk about that. So there must yeah. be something here. Yeah. They're trying to cover it up. Um, right. Which and also, I mean, so let's say there, you march in Germany as a neo-Nazi party. You would have different flags that aren't the swastika flag. And I have to think to myself that if they were marching with actual swastika flags, the response that would get from the German public would be much harsher than these mildly adjusted swastika flags. Like actually seeing those flags fly in Germany again, I think would have, a, I mean, a very different cultural impact, but I don't know. It's a complicated, it's a complicated issue. It's yeah. especially given Germany's specific past, but I mean, the American equivalent would be if we banned the flying of the Confederate flag, which we can't even imagine. I can't even imagine that happening. Right. Um, that which that's just, it's not something I ever want to see happen in America. I don't agree with people flying the Confederate flag, but I do not want to see them banned from flying it. Right. Um, well, and you know, the issue is, is so complicated. I obviously, I also want a world where no one even thinks about doing it. Um, Civil war, you know, battle reenactments are a kind of interesting phenomenon. Um, so, but obviously that would be like a, that would be a special case. But what I just I cannot get over the idea that the and I, I go back to Maine a lot when I think about this. That like you know I've, I've driven through New Hampshire on the way to Maine, and I've seen Confederate flags on yeah. you know pickup trucks and stuff, and I just cannot get over the idea that people in New England in general and even Maine. Maine, which, you know, has this, had this 
pivotal role, main Republicans, oh, yes. uh, you know, at the Battle of Gettysburg on Little Round Top, saved the Union. And the idea that Mainers would somehow find a sense of identity in this symbol that their ancestors, because a lot of people, I mean, there are a lot of, you know, there are, there are some interesting communities of like refugees and, you know, political asylees in Maine. Um, but a lot of people who are from Maine have been there forever. You know, their families have been there forever. And, uh, you know, the idea that they would, that the current generations would look back to, um, you know, this symbol of treason and rebellion that their own ancestors sort of collectively, uh, rose in such glorious fashion to suppress is, is shocking. But, you know, I think you have to see that shock and at least I am so shocked by it that I then am forced to attempt to understand it and not simply to reject it with like a sanctimonious, uh, the sort of, I mean, the degree of sanctimony that, that so much of the Clinton campaign messaging adopted. Um, I mean, there are things I see on people's lawn that shock me, but not enough that I feel I need to understand it. Um, usually in terms of plastic, uh, <laughs> creatures Plastic of flamingos. various forms, yeah, and, and gnomes <laughs> and stuff. I, I, right. it's like I don't get it, but I also don't feel like I have to try to understand it because I don't think that we're fundamentally different people. You know, whereas with a Confederate flag, you're, you're just like you are driven to try to understand because something seems wrong there. It's right. I mean, I've seen that too. I mean, in Ohio, you see Confederate flags fly, and right. you know, Ohio is a, was a northern state, and yeah, it's um, it's. It's it's a problem where you want to be reasonable and say, look, I understand this is about – to you, this may be about your past or your culture or you know, your Not the southern in Ohio. Right now, that's what I'm saying. It's like yeah. you want to say that. You want to be able to give them the benefit of the doubt to some extent. But then you look at, at something like that and you just think, how could this possibly not be about racism? Right, and that's and that's unfortunately where it goes, yeah. Because uh, what, what's, what's, the, what, what's the other what's the common factor? Yeah. You're like, oh, I wish my side had lost to that other side. Well, but but even with that, it's like, so you know, Eisenhower sent the paratroopers to integrate uh, the schools in Little Rock. Republican on the right side, forced to do it by the Supreme Court, but you know, unlike Andrew Jackson, when the Supreme Court Wait. said here's your, you know, this is what we have to do. This is the constitutional, you know, unlike Andrew Jackson, you said, uh, you've made your decision now enforce it. Perhaps apocryphally. I don't know, but certainly that was the effect. Um, Eisenhower hopped to it. Um, you know, Republicans have a good record on this. And it's not all, uh, some Republicans have had good right. records on this. Um, I mean, George W. Bush looks but, better and better on some of these things as time goes on. Yeah, uh, in certain in certain ways. Yeah, not on all. Although ways, again, but in although ways. again, he he cleared the way. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. But uh, you know, but it, but it, it's hard to explain it purely on racist grounds. Um, in a, again, in a place like Maine, where you know they're not dealing with segregate, you know, integrating the schools. There just aren't that many, particularly over the several previous decades, there just have not been that many black people there. Um, and I think it's, this gets to a different issue that isn't really on topic for the podcast, but maybe I'll just lay a marker down on it. But like, I think, uh, I mean, the Confederate flag 
symbolizes different things to different people. And unfortunately, one of the things it symbolizes to people who are insufficiently aware of the history of race in America, um, it symbolizes defiance and, you know, the rebel spirit. And those people, I think, very clearly flocked to Bernie Sanders and to Trump. Now, that's the 10%. Those are the people who were never going to vote for I mean, who were not really ever going to vote for a Democrat, who were drawn to uh, to Bernie Sanders in the primary period and, and said, you know, I support Sanders in those polls um, because he seemed to be sticking it to the guy, the man. Yeah. You know, he was coming out of nowhere and saying, you know, you can't buy this election. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to win it. With my and free he, media. <laughs> that's a totally different yeah. topic. Yeah, exactly. You know, the, the way that the, that the rebel, that the rebel, uh, cleverly manipulates the establishment or parts of the establishment. But, uh, yeah, I think that's the story. And Trump dominated that agenda after the, uh, and in a way I'm not saying anything new because this is just the, you know, establishment versus change concept. People have been talking about this for a while, but I think a lot of people have not grappled with the way in which that core message could be totally owned by the Democrats. That's the symbolism of the little guy. That really could be just utterly, utterly the possession of Democrats as a political symbol. Um, and it goes back to, you know, I just I had this stupid thought that I've been playing around with that um, the symbol of the Democratic Party is a kicking mule and the president of the United States is a braying ass. <laughs> yes. You know, but but he but he understands the symbol of this sort of stubborn, surly, defiant um, figure that uh, Democrats seem to be incapable of remembering how to tap as a political symbol. Uh, and it Never goes let to the it free... be said the Democrats are good at politics. <laughs> yeah, well, it seems to have been a while. Yeah. Anyway, uh, um, well, that that um, so we're running very low on time. Um, yeah. somewhat amazingly uh, for a thing where I was almost I think we may have to just split this up and do policy on next week's podcast um, because it actually works fairly well to do our heresies culturally and our heresies politic- uh, in terms of actual policy uh, separately that's I a fair point to, yeah. Yeah, I do have one last thing I want to talk about that straddles the line of policy and, um, and, uh, and culture and that actually fits in with what we were just discussing which is Citizens United yeah. Um, for another thing where I can be a bit of a heresy. Now, when yep. that case, I was in law school when that case came down, and um, at first, before it was decided, part of the question people thought that was it was going to be about was whether it was okay for a corporation to use its general treasury funds for political activities, hmm. which is very different from what it's known for now. Um, and there were some concerns about corporate law that that basically implicated. But... Um, what it's known for now is this this notion that people say, "Oh, you can buy an election. You can buy, um, you can buy these things because you've said that money is speech and therefore is protected." I actually want to take the somewhat controversial on the left view of saying that I think that aspect of Citizens United was correctly decided on free speech principles. Um, I'm going to be very clear immediately and say that as a practical matter, it's a disaster in terms of does it do our politics good or bad 
it's it's very bad for them. Like as a practical matter, the result of Citizens United has been horrific for our democracy. But if mm. you're going to talk about free speech principles, I think Citizens United is correct because what they're talking about here is when they say money is speech, it's because you have to spend money to say things. You have to spend money to run ads. Um, you have to because there's a difference between money that you are ex- that is an expenditure, money that you're spending yourself on something versus money you're contributing to a candidate. Contributing to a candidate is something that is, is a little clearer that you can block that because giving money straight up to the candidate, well, you're giving them something. It's closer to being like a bribe. But when it comes to expending money on your own independently, I think free speech principles require the result of Citizens United. I think that you could find yourself in a point where you have spent a certain amount of money running a certain amount of ads as an individual person and you've hit a cap and then people could say to you, you're not allowed to say anything essentially for the rest of this election because you hit the cap, something new Mm -hmm. happens. And now you can't express a political point. And if the first amendment is to protect any specific kind of speech, it is political speech. That's what it's there for more than anything else. It's there so that people can get up in the public forum and express their point of view. And the fact that you have to spend money to put it on an ad instead of running into a crowded square and shouting it or, you know, even if it were just, you know, was Martin Luther when he posted his theses on the church wall. I mean, you have to spend money to get the paper to write it all out, to buy the nail. Um, You know, it's you have to do things in order to say things. And I think from core free speech principles, I think Citizens United was correct. I think that free speech requires you to let people spend resources that they have to say things that they believe. As a practical matter, it's a disaster because you wind up with people talking about the Sheldon Adelson primary, um, where you have to go and genuflect before a rich donor so that he'll support your campaign. That's a disaster for our democracy. But if you really believe in free speech, that's something that happens. Very interesting point, and uh, I do want I want to dovetail with that in a sense. Um, I think you know. So the problem with the problem with laws and constitutions is that you have to take them seriously. And I am not a lawyer at all. I have no legal training whatsoever, uh, despite taking a class on constitutional law at the undergraduate level. Whose class did you uh, take? Amar's. Was it Aquila Mars? Okay. Yeah. 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 Aquila Mars. And um, great class. Taught me a lot. It was. I liked his but class. But not a lawyer. Nope. I find what you say plausible. Uh, I can't I can't really argue with it on the legal grounds. All I can say is that um, was a, you know, the Constitution is not a suicide pact. Right. Uh, you do have to take it seriously. You do You must abide by it. But um, I mean, as a society, you must figure out ways of living. Right. And so, so that's to some extent a disagreement with what you said, kind of, although I don't really disagree. Um, however, what I find hard to get my head around is the fact that you just mentioned the Sheldon Adelson primary. Sheldon Adelson's candidate lost. Yeah. You know? Yeah. No, you're right. The, I mean, all the I mean, money. The, the fact is, all the money was on the side of the people who, who, I mean, so the structure of the Democratic primary 
served very well to elevate this guy with no money to become a nationally competitive candidate who could have won had his message resonated with more Democratic voters. Um, he absolutely had a chance. He had enormous media coverage and sympathy. Uh, Bernie Sanders, obviously. And, and incredibly passionate, devoted supporters um, who carried him very far. And um, so to the extent that we're making, you know, if we're trying to make a case that money, money talks, you know, and the people have no voice, that doesn't, uh, doesn't apply to the uh, Democratic primary because he very, I mean, you know, you had issues with um, scheduling debates and the number of debates. And there were, there were things that the structure could have been much more open. And there was this collusion with the DNC you know, who clearly had their preferred candidates and were trying to yeah, they the wanted scales. the candidate who's actually a Democrat to win the Democratic primary. There's a whole discussion. Like, I, know, them, I know, obviously. Yeah. But um, but the point is that, you know, no one could really say with a straight face that Democratic voters did not have a, a, a very good chance to hear what Bernie Sanders had to say before they made their choice. Yeah. Um, and with the Republicans, same deal, you know, shock and awe, George uh, Jeb, you know, Jeb Bush, uh, Rubio, Cruz, you know, these people who had massive uh, money lined up behind them, these billionaire, deep pocketed billionaires, they couldn't buy the, they couldn't buy it. Right. You know, you, and of course, free money, free ad time, you know, effectively free uh, ad airtime that Trump got has to be factored into it, but it's not, you know, Again, American democracy, as insane and frustrating and uh, unpredictable as it is, was not. It, you can't. You cannot say that this last election was bought. It's right. so much. It problem. absolutely wasn't. It was. Yeah. I mean, th yeah. This, this despite this was, Citizens United, and, that's, despite, and so that's. Yeah. Yeah. People thought that was going to be very. People thought the outcome would be very different than it than it was in terms of the effect money would have. And um, I want to note that. Um, some studies, which of course I don't have on me and can't cite exactly, because what was the phrase you used before about we're not um, we're not something where we we have to cite everything. But um, uh, money in politics doesn't matter quite as much as people think that it does. It's sort of it's more to the case unless there's a, a disparity that's so absolutely ridiculous that one person yeah. really does get crowded out. Um, it's more like you have to have a minimum threshold, and then. It right. And then the, the diminishing the, – the thing about money is it hits diminishing returns. Once you right. get it to the billionth dollar spent on your campaign, that's not doing nearly as much as the first you know million or so was doing. Yeah. Um, and uh, as, as a result, candidates need a certain amount of money to be taken seriously by the media to start with. You know, Lindsey Graham was never considered a serious Republican candidate. and But that has nothing yeah. to do with Citizens United. That has right. – more to do in general with the fact that he just wasn't considered a serious candidate. Uh, yeah. And I feel the solution to the problems that Citizens United could create, which again, as we just, as we just expressed, we're not nearly as bad as we thought they'd be. If you think about where does money go in campaigns, you're trying to do voter registration mobilization and you're running like a lot of ads. And yeah. we kind of know that those ads are nonsense. <laughs> we kind of know you're not supposed to listen to those ads. They're not really going to be informative. And we all can just vote on our own. So you know, Bill Clinton once said, there's nothing wrong with America that can't be fixed with what is right with America. 
Yeah. And if we don't want money in politics to matter, we can just all show up to vote and all ignore ads. A lot of us I know can. practically we can't. Yeah. But I mean a lot of us can, a lot of us actually you know. Right. I mean there are issues with people can. who can't get off work and people who don't have the proper IDs. Yeah. These are actual issues. Um but relative to the scope of the problem people believed there would be from Citizens United, it's not yeah. as big. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And um you know, the point you were making about diminishing returns and minimum uh funding yeah, that's a that's an elevation from the the level of discourse we had brought to bear on this topic, which was like, is it good? Is it bad? Is it a problem? Is it not a problem? You know, those are those are precise issues that should be addressed. And one more that I would suggest is um, a potential a potentially vast problem with the way these donor networks function is um, you know allowing the presidential election to I was trying to make an eclipse metaphor, but I can't think of how to do it. You know, just looking past the, uh, you know, the presidential election, the glaring sun of, of the presidential election and seeing uh, down ballot or local elections where, uh, you know, $10,000 can make a huge difference or $100,000, which is nothing for these deep pocketed donors. Right. Um, but it just shocks the system in a it, in part because people aren't expecting to see ads for the land commissioner or, or, you know, the, I mean, whatever local Senate candidate. Basically or, any local. Yeah. Any, any exactly. Yeah. Right. You expect trying, to see yeah. them for governor, Senate and, and president. And then sometimes your congressman. Yeah. Other than that, not so much. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we'll have to call it a show now because we've run fairly long and we'll just have to split this up into a two-parter which i look forward to of all the things we shouldn't cut short the one we're being honest about where we differ from the other side is probably one of them um, or or the one we should never air <laughs> we should never air uh no this is this is this is going to be online available for everybody within the next 30 minutes so yeah. um i'm just going to give us a very quick sign off then to note that uh, I've been going around a lot with my Cleveland Browns hat on lately. Um, I, I tend to wear it a lot because I have a very oddly shaped head and it is the only hat I own that can properly stay on without being brushed away by a light gust of wind. And I am very uh, – people will always say things like, oh, you guys must not be looking forward to September. Or, oh, it's that's got to be pretty rough. I just want everybody to know that uh, while there is a lot of pain involved in being a Cleveland Browns fan, we are never – sad to see september come we are never sad for another season of football we know we're going to get our hearts broken we know sad things are going to happen but we love the game and we love our team and i want everybody to consider you know if you're some spoiled person who grew up in boston in the last 20 years oh wow look at me my team wins all the time or if you're new york yankees fans that i know who get upset whenever their team doesn't win the world series you don't know what it's like to be a real fan if you just get to be with your team when it wins. When you're wearing that Browns hat and they haven't even been to the playoffs in 15 years, that's when you're a real fan. I just want to leave you all with that thought. See that's you next the, week. That's the contradiction at the at the core of the of Cleveland. Absolutely. Have a nice week. <laughs>